the snow-making headlines around the globe. Istanbul Airport recorded 41 centimetres of level snow, basically a continuous heavy snow all day. And the high importance of unlikely events. Hopefully it won't happen, and I know it's unlikely, but of course if it did happen, then the impact could be devastating. It's Friday the 28th of January and you're listening to Weathersnap from the Met Office. Hello, I'm Claire Nazir and this is Weathersnap, an insider's guide to the week's weather headlines. Last week, Weathersnap reported on the heavy snow and freezing conditions sweeping across Turkey, mainland Greece and the Greek islands. Forecasts at the time suggested conditions would persist into the weekend and possibly the start of the week. In actual fact, severe conditions have continued throughout this last week, with Turkey being particularly badly affected. To find out the latest details, I spoke to Jason Kelly, Deputy Chief Meteorologist with the Met Office Global Guidance Unit. They have seen a tremendous amount of snow, Claire, mainly on coastal areas which are abutting the Black Sea. The reason for that is the coldness of the air which spreads south across the Black Sea over relatively warm waters. Uh, The Black Sea itself, temperatures there of the surface waters between 8 and 10 degrees Celsius. Looking at that climatologically, that's between 1 and and 1.5 degrees above normal. So when you combine the very cold air and the very warm underlying water, or relatively warm underlying water at any rate, that leads to a frequent inundation of showers onto the coasts of uh, more especially Turkey. On Monday, for example, Istanbul Airport recorded 41 centimetres of level snow, basically a continuous heavy snow all day. And that was generated by a feed, a very strong feed of northeasterly winds, bringing heavy showers and also thunderstorms. There was thunder snow reported there on and off for much of the day on Monday. It took a bit longer for the showers to get inland, but even places like Ankara, which is quite a bit away from the coast, saw some pretty heavy snowfall. And uh, the airport there, Esmboga, recorded temperatures down below minus 10. It should be noted as well that a lot of Turkey is quite elevated, so it's not just the coastal areas. Inland is pretty cold this time of year anyway, but there were some exceptionally low minima recorded well below minus 20 and some of the more prone spots like Kars and Erzurum, which are towns, as I say, quite inland and relatively high up. Extreme cold hasn't been confined to Turkey. Similar conditions have extended into the Middle East and to areas with especially vulnerable populations. Those cold conditions also spread further south and east into parts of Syria, Iraq, where we saw snow being reported, more especially across northern Iraq. Obviously, you can imagine the weather reports out of Syria are pretty limited at the minute, but satellite imagery did suggest that they saw some pretty low minima overnight. Uh, It'll take a bit longer for the, the less cold conditions to spread east across those areas, but I think by the time we get to the back end of the weekend and more especially into next week, we'll see temperatures and conditions more akin to the climatological norm across those areas. So yes, vulnerable populations, both Iraq and Syria, will probably have experienced some pretty cold weather over the last week or so. So those are conditions to the east of the UK. But just before we finished, Jason brought me up to date with snow events causing concern for meteorologists on the other side of the globe, this time North America. The latest output from the National Weather Service in the US is suggesting that parts of Rhode Island and eastern Massachusetts could see snowfall approaching a foot and a half by the time the storm eases as we go through into the latter part of the weekend. That's likely to be accompanied by strong to gale force, perhaps severe gale force, northeasterly winds, which gives the storm its name, a nor'easter, um, which will accentuate the cold, lead to significant drifting and blowing of snow blizzard conditions and also the potential for coastal inundation from storm surge associated with a system. Um, as I say, there is some uncertainty with that. How um, the track pans out in an east-west context as the storm runs up the eastern coast of the US will dictate snowfall totals. 
But even as far south as New York and uh, Washington, Baltimore area, we're likely to see between four and six inches of snow by the time the storm clears away to the east. So potential for some very significant impacts there. And it should be said as well that once the storm clears, the air mass falling on behind will be very cold. So we may see some unusually low minima overlying snow especially in Massachusetts, where there is talk of the requirement for wind chill warnings for later in the weekend. So that's uh, quite unusual for that part of the world. Extreme weather events have become more frequent in recent years, many of which can be attributed to climate change. Our understanding of climate is based on computer models that indicate particular patterns or trends. But how do you figure in outliers, the so-called high-impact, low-likelihood events, or HILs, which, while remote, could have devastating consequences. That was the subject of a Twitter Spaces conversation hosted by Alex Deacon earlier this week, in which he talked to Met Office climate scientists, starting with Dr Richard Wood. We're really talking about things that probably and kind of hopefully won't happen. Um, but if they did happen, they'd have a, a major impact. So just to give an example, I really hope my house doesn't burn down in the next year or 10 years even. Uh, and hopefully it won't happen. And I know it's unlikely. But of course, if it did happen, then the impact could be devastating. And we're kind of used to taking these things into account in our lives. So although it's unlikely... I, you know, I have smoke alarms installed, I get my wiring checked to uh, try and reduce the likelihood of it happening. So perhaps I could give one example in the climate sphere and then the others might, might want to give some other examples. So the kind of event we're talking about here is, for example, is what would happen if it turned out that what we call the sensitivity of the climate to greenhouse gases, so the amount of climate change that you get for a given amount of extra greenhouse gases, what would happen if that sensitivity was right at the kind of near the top end of the range that we think it could be in? So basically what that would say is that for a given amount of greenhouse gases, we'd be getting more climate change than perhaps we were expecting or perhaps we currently think is, is the most likely. So it's that kind of thing. It's the sort of thing that we really hope won't happen, but we need to be prepared and think mm. about how we're going to be prepared and resilient if those sorts of things do happen. One form of high-impact, low-likelihood event is known as a tipping point. Here's ocean and sea ice scientist Dr Helene Hewitt. In a tipping point, it's like we've passed a point of no return. You know, the system would never be the same once we've gone past the tipping point. So, for example, if we went past a tipping point in West Antarctic ice sheet and it collapsed, it might recover, but it wouldn't necessarily recover in exactly the same way if the climate cooled. So if the West Antarctic ice sheet collapsed, or even if we don't go officially past a tipping point, but we lose a, a lot of ice from that ice sheet, we will get a much higher sea level rise than we're predicting in what we would call the likely range. So in the IPCC report, we talk about in the highest warming scenarios, we might reach a metre by the end of the century. But if we went into one of these kind of outcomes, we could see an additional metre over the century. A different example of a tipping point centres on the Amazon rainforest. Here's Met Office Head of Climate Impacts, Professor Richard Betts. Deforestation and climate change together could be taking the forest to a potential tipping point. The return of moisture to the atmosphere from the forest itself, evaporation from the forest, which helps to maintain the rainfall, that is reduced so much that the rainfall levels 
are no longer sufficient to support the actual forest. And that's where you would pass this point of no return where the climate would be drier and the forest could never grow back again. And that would release more carbon to the atmosphere and accelerate the CO2 rise and accelerate climate change. One aspect of climate tipping points is the scenario known as a cascade in which one event can lead to another, the results of which can be hard to predict. Richard Wood. We think of the Greenland ice sheet. If the Greenland ice sheet melts and puts water into the North Atlantic, that's going to weaken the Atlantic overturning circulation. But then if the circulation weakens, then that cools the North Atlantic and that actually can stop the Greenland ice sheet melting. There could be two kind of tipping points that sort of stabilise each other. But again, the the, you know, the detail, the devil's in the detail with these things, and we really have to improve our modelling of the individual processes to see whether these things are really stabilising or whether they could kick off one of these cascades. The realisation of the need to consider high-impact, low-likelihood events is relatively new, but with such high stakes, it's something we can ill afford to ignore. Helene Hewitt. I think it's really important that these low likelihood outcomes that people understand that we can't rule them out, you know, that people take them into account when they make risk assessments for their particular application. So, you know, there's some applications, perhaps like if you're building a nuclear power station, you definitely want to protect that against some very high sea levels. So, you know, that would be a very risk averse user, for example. So, you know, it's just really important to encompass this when you're looking at what the possible outcomes of what we're doing to the climate is. Dr. Helene Hewitt talking to Alex Deacon. You can find out more about tipping points, cascades and other Met Office climate science work by searching for Twitter, hashtag get climate ready. Well, here, with the details of more shorter-term weather events, it's Aidan McGiven with the outlook for the next few days. This weekend, across northern parts of the UK, two spells of disruptive winds are likely. The second one coming along Sunday night and into Monday. The first on Saturday morning, tied in with an area of low pressure named by the Danish Met Service as Storm Malik because of the expected disruption from this by Sunday. But it's on Saturday morning that it's likely to bring the lively weather to northern parts of the UK. In fact, through Friday night and into the start of Saturday, winds will be picking up across the UK. And with extensive cloud cover and some rain in places, it's certainly going to be a much milder start to Saturday but it will also be a blustery start for northern parts of the UK with widespread wind gusts of 50 to 60 miles an hour for northern England, northern Ireland and Scotland as we wake up on Saturday morning. The winds will strengthen further as a cold front pushes through Scotland, bringing a spell of heavy rain, but also bringing wind gusts of more than 60 miles an hour in places, particularly exposed coasts and hills of western Scotland early on. And then by mid-morning, the focus is on eastern Scotland, especially northeastern parts of Aberdeenshire and around the Firth of Forth, where wind gusts could gust in excess of 70 or 75 miles an hour into Sunday, so a fairly widespread frost, I think, on Sunday morning, but bright skies. And for many, Sunday morning is looking decent, and into the afternoon, the fine weather continues for southern and eastern parts of the country. But towards the northwest, a developing area of low pressure, another deepening depression starts to move in. And this will arrive later in the afternoon and early in the evening for northwestern Scotland. Again, bringing some heavy rain and some hill snow to Scotland, but also bringing strengthening winds with widespread gales expected for northern England, Northern Ireland, as well as Scotland by Sunday evening. And those winds perhaps picking up to 60 miles an hour in places, or even higher, depending on the depth and the track of the low. 
Also, depending on the depth and the track of the low, we could see some disruptive snow, certainly over the higher ground of Scotland, but perhaps to lower levels for northern Scotland by the end of the night. Thanks, Aidan. Now over to Martin Bowles, who has last week's highs and lows. Here are the extremes for last week, recorded between Monday the 17th of January and Sunday the 23rd of January. The highest temperature was 16.0 degrees Celsius at Armagh in Northern Ireland on Monday. That's 9 degrees higher than a typical January maximum for that area. You would expect the lowest temperature to be in the highlands of Scotland, but this week it was in Oxfordshire in southern England. Minus 7.9 Celsius was recorded at RAF Benson early on Friday morning. The base lies in a local low point in the landscape where cold, dense air collects overnight. This feature is known as a frost hollow. On cloudless nights with very little wind, Benson often becomes much colder than surrounding areas. Northwest Scotland was the wettest area last week. 23.2 millimetres of rain was measured at Loch Glascarnock in Rosencromarty on Wednesday. The sunniest place was in West Cornwall. 7.9 hours of sunshine were measured at Camborne on Friday. Thanks, Martin. That's it for Weathersnap. I'm Claire Nazir. Editor is Adrian Holloway. Weathersnap is a podcast by the UK Met Office. For the latest weather conditions where you are, download the Met Office weather app.